Welcome back to another episode of Addicted to MRR. Today we have a longtime friend of mine, Andrew Warner from Mixergy. How are you doing, Andrew? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. You know, I've known you for years uh, and I've been following you long before we were friends. Uh, why don't you let the audience know about Mixergy, though? I'm sure they've heard of you, but you know, what is, what is Mixergy and what prompted you to start it? It's a site where I bring entrepreneurs on to do interviews with me and do courses without me. <laughs> <laughs> But Mixergy hasn't been the only thing you've done uh, in that time, same time span, right? You started other businesses off to the side, like Bot Academy? Bot Academy was actually, like other side things that we did, was just part of Mixergy. I got really excited about chatbots for, for Mixergy. I invested in a chatbot company that enabled uh, marketers to reach their audiences via uh, chat. It was called ManyChat, still is. And I got fascinated and I started talking about it on my site. And then people said, well, this doesn't really make sense. Why are you why are you talking so much about chat? So I just got another domain called Bot Academy and I started talking about it there and teaching people what I learned. And it took on a life of its own. And then we recently as a company sold it to one of our students. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but would you say that Mixergy has definitely been your main focus for what, 10 years yeah. now? Something like that? I am not the type of person who likes to to get to do to have multiple focuses, if that makes sense. I, I think that um, I work really well when I take one thing and I obsess on that one thing. And that's where I start to find improvement, mastery, where I get a reputation that then brings in more people, which then brings in more more mastery. Yeah. And if you're anything like me and other entrepreneurs, too, you know, it's easy to get enticed by the idea of doing something else, but it's hard to toggle your brain and truly excel to your fullest extent when you're having to go between multiple different concepts or ideas. You know, at least with with myself, when I'm in the showers, I'm always thinking about, you know, what what's the problem that we're trying to solve right now and how can I try to optimize that to its highest potential? And so I agree that splitting your focus makes that definitely difficult. Yeah, I I've seen other entrepreneurs get new ideas by having little side projects that they do. And then those ideas from the side projects help improve their businesses. And I've I've definitely gotten those uh, those performance boosts. But I also just know that I work really well with a lot of focus. Sure. Let's understand Mixergy as a business a little bit more. Mm -hmm. How does Mixergy make money? Two ways. We make money from advertising and then membership. The advertising is straight up the stuff that we see in a lot of podcasts, except our CPMs are a little bit higher than others because we look for companies that are really nice fit for the audience and we almost marry them with the partnerships that we have. And then uh, the other revenue comes from membership where people pay a monthly or annual fee to get access to certain content. And that content is um, me ending an interview sometimes and saying to the guest, thanks for telling us your life story. You're really good at teaching this one. You're really good at doing this one thing. Would you come on and teach it for an hour? And they usually say no. Um, and I say, why not? I say, well, I'm not really good at teaching this or explaining it. We just kind of do it. I say, well, I've got somebody here on the team, or I will personally do it depending on what works best and will work with you to have you break down your process in a way that's interesting, in a way that helps people really learn it and apply it. And we'll record it. And then what you learn from us, you can use to teach your process in other places so that you can finally go out and not just be an internal entrepreneur, but be someone who speaks at conferences, who maybe um, blogs about this, maybe does your own course about this and starts to show what you do well. 
And so what percentage of your revenue comes from advertising versus your Mixergy Premium customers? You know, it changes year to year, not because of anything that we do differently, but because of the state of podcasting, frankly. For a long time, advertising was like 5% of our revenue. And then suddenly there became a big flood of interest in podcasting. And then I brought somebody on who helps uh, sell ads in our po- in, in the podcast. And so then advertising became a much, much bigger thing. And then I feel like something happened at the end of last year where I think that I let the podcast get a little bit stale. And so we we started to see that there was more revenue coming in and more growth in membership than there was in advertising. And over the years, I've really thought about just giving one or the other of those two revenue sources the boot. I especially wanted to get rid of advertising years ago. It wasn't doing that much. And it wasn't, I didn't feel directly aligning my interests with my audience. I was trying to figure out what my advertisers wanted. And I did an interview with an entrepreneur who told me about a tough time that she had in business. And the way that she recovered was some side revenue that helped her out. And she said, never give it up. She's uh, Anne Handley, I think is her name. And she was a person who taught businesses how to set up memberships. And I'm so glad that I listened to her. I kept the advertising component. Advertising took off. It turns out that if you find the right advertisers, if you're not selling underwear the way that a lot of people were doing <laughs> for years, then uh, there's more revenue in something that's directly tied to your audience's interest. And there's more excitement in the audience for what you're selling. So it goes back and forth. Where it shakes out this year, I don't know. My guess is that we might end up being 50-50 this year. Wow, okay. So advertising has really grown then to be a pretty significant portion. Really the only part, I guess, in the, in, you know, addicted to MRR being focused on subscriptions, mm-hmm. about how much are you doing right now in monthly recurring revenue when you also figure your annually recurring stuff broken down into monthly? What does that kind of work out to per month? Uh, let me see if I could figure it out. By actually just logging into QuickBooks and I'll see if I can get you the exact number. <laughs> It'll take me a moment. So if you want to go in with other questions, we'll come back. Yeah, um, well, we try to understand, you know, the the pricing model too. I mean, if someone else is out there trying to run a, a podcast, and like, what do I even charge for my premium stuff? What kind of prices do you charge monthly and annually? It's 50 bucks a month and $400 a year. And we've experimented. I've charged 25. My preference was 25 a month, 200 a year, but... I kept hearing from people that I was not valuing myself well, that I was not valuing my 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 product well, that I should be increasing prices. And I literally would get text messages from other entrepreneurs since I interview entrepreneurs, since I have them on to teach uh, what we call master classes, which is what people pay money for. I get a lot of feedback on my pricing. And for years, I said, no, I'm just going to keep it. I like having a low price point. I like that people get value and then they feel that they feel good about it. But I finally just said, let's give it a shot. And I'm glad I did. If you're hearing any kind of hesitation in my voice, it's because I I do still like to service as many people as possible. And I think that lowering prices allowed me to do that. You used to offer a lifetime plan, didn't you? It was an experiment. It was, uh, again, this is because of the types of people who, who I get connected with from interviews. I get a lot of feedback from them. I was on the phone with Noah Kagan, who runs sumo.com. And he said, you know, Andrew, I think you should offer a lifetime plan. And I said, no, he goes, just do it right now. Come on, go ahead. And so, <laughs> Sounds like Noah. Um, it's totally Noah. And I did it and it worked and it was it was nice. But I also felt at the time a little bit guilty about it. 
So we're looking at, oh, it's kind of interesting. It looks like they've plotted out the revenue for for the rest of the year based on estimates our bookkeepers have. We're looking at um, about, it seems it's about 17,000, 18,000. So then advertising is totally helpful. Advertising is how has grown it. So you're seventeen to eighteen thousand dollars a month in premium subscriptions. Yeah, sorry. So what I mean is not advertising helped. Advertising has overtaken it, and so that means that I am not promoting my membership much. I'm promoting advertising, and that's that's something that I've done over the last couple of years as advertising has gotten bigger and bigger. Do you think that speaks more to the demand from the advertising side as far as what they're willing to pay on a CPM basis or just saturation in training products? What do you what do you think has led to that shift? Where my attention happens to be, I, I, I sell out my ads a year in advance. And if an advertiser is is the person that I talk to a lot and they're not seeing a great month, then I want to find a way to give it to them. And there's like an advertiser advocate now that I think about it. We don't have one for membership. A membership advocate would be pretty interesting. But an advertiser advocate, the guy who sells the ads to the advertisers, he's reaching out to me on a regular basis saying we need to do more for the advertiser. What else can we do? And he's coming up with suggestions with the advertisers and we're doing it. So, for example, you'll see me send out email about my advertiser now where it's a story from from my life that happens to connect to an advertiser. Sachit Gupta, that's the name of the guy who's selling the ad. Sachit uh, reached out to me a while back and said, Andrew, what if we also sell your photo? I said, how could you sell my photo to advertising? He goes, well, here's what you do. They want to reach people. Those people are not on your site because you keep pushing them into your podcast. What if they could just target your audience on social media using your photo and say, you've heard me talk about this company. Do you want to click here and find out more? And I think that's really helpful. Because if someone's listening to a podcast and they hear something that makes sense to them, I don't think that they're pulling over and writing it down. I think they're saying, I've got to go and check it out at some point and they forget. But if they're on social media and they see it again and they remember that this is the thing that they were curious about, they'll tap over and then sign up or check it out and, and give it a real consideration. So basically, you're allowing advertisers to pay to use your likeness in their av- advertising material. Yep. Cool. Well, that's an interesting I, way to monetize your whole brand and, and footprint, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I should say I don't know if that's something we're specifically doing right now, but that's the type of thing that Sachit has come up with. And by advocating for the sponsor, he's been able to grow sponsor revenue. When I take a look at these numbers, I can now see that advertising is definitely bigger, much bigger. It's not a 50-50 split. Interesting. You know, I want to circle back. I hadn't plan to spend as much time on pricing with you, but I can I can sense something here. So I want to dig a little deeper. You yeah. said you felt guilty about lifetime subscriptions. Why, why it happened that? when I was early on, just getting started, and I knew where I wanted it to go. And I felt really bad that it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And the people who were signing up were amazing people who just wanted to support me. So I felt guilty that they were signing up for something that wasn't what I wanted it to be, wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. So you felt guilty about the product, not about the price point? Yes. I felt guilty that they were paying anything for the for the product that I, I knew needed to be better. So you have that sort of, you know, like a lot of SaaS founders, you know, they have this this fear and anxiety over the quality of their product when they're first launching it, but you just didn't feel right that it was a lifetime subscription and that they were paying hundreds of dollars for something you didn't think was worth it? Sort of like an imposter syndrome kind of thing? or the what? Imposter syndrome is the phrase that went in, into my head as you were asking me about it, for sure. It was that. It was, yeah, it was... It's not good enough and I really want to take care of these people. 
Well, buying lifetime, they're betting on you, you know. <laughs> I know. And I get the I get the psychology of it too. I mean, sometimes they're just friends who are supporting or friends of the podcast, I should say, people who supported the business who who got something out of it and want to say thank you. Sometimes there are people for whom what were we charging? I forget, five hundred dollars, six hundred, something like that. It's not that much money. I spent a I think about that much on dinner with uh, some guests last night, talking like four people sitting around a table. So I get I get why they would do it. And I did it too for the goodwill of we're friends, work friends, sure, but we're still friends. Absolutely, I'll buy dinner. And um, even though I didn't eat dinner, I just wanted a whiskey. <laughs> I did it. And I think they were doing the same thing with me. And I still had the sense of, if not an imposter syndrome, this sense of guilt or it's not good enough. Hmm. Well, we're definitely going to come back to that. <laughs> sure. So when you when you look at that revenue, then 17, 18 grand, has that dipped then over the year? Obviously, revenue or advertising yes. revenue has taken up more, but that means you have been experiencing more churn than new signups on your Mixture G Premium. I am not promoting it nearly enough. So last year, I hired someone to work full time on creating master classes with graduates excuse me, with uh, interviewees, people who started companies who came on to do a podcast uh, about it. And the quality increased and I wasn't doing enough to to promote it. I, I just wasn't. In the interviews, instead of saying, by the way, if you like this, you can go and sign up. I said, if you like this, I'm going to keep on doing more work and doing better interviews in the future, right? Instead of promoting the thing that I'm selling. So I was promoting the advertiser, not my product. So what do you think has led to the churn then? It sounds like churn has potentially increased. I realize you said you, have, you haven't been promoting it as much, but I mean, has churn been increasing? Like the number of cancellations actually been going up? No, I think it's fairly flat. Now, I use ProfitWell to tell me what, what the numbers are. And I find it to be a really difficult piece of software to go through. So someone from the company got on a Zoom call with me and we went through the numbers and churn was churn was not bad at all. It's just years of not promoting. So years just, of just literally twice a year promoting. Yeah, so just general atrophy then. Yeah, and I, I do a lot with the people who sign up. I'll... I, I, do days where I do nothing but calls with them. They've got me on text messages. They come into the office at times to just spend time here and to work or to talk through what they're doing. So I spend time with people who sign up. I don't spend time bringing in new new customers. Do you have any kind of campaigns to try to win back people who canceled or maybe at that point offer them a lifetime subscription option when they go to cancel or anything like that? We do a couple of things that help me learn from them. So you survey To understand what? what they were. I hate surveys. I, I think I'm the only one, the only entrepreneur I know who hates sending out surveys. It feels like that's the answer for a lot of people. I feel like people aren't really pouring their hearts. They're not pouring their frustrations into a survey. They're not going to say my company failed because I just couldn't figure this thing out. They'll say this is too expensive in a survey and they'll move on. What we do is, I, will, I don't know how much I should be saying about this, but it's good. We will contact them and say, Andrew feels bad that you didn't get what you wanted out of the program. And if you didn't get it out of the program, he'll be there to give it to you personally. And so you don't have to pay. We don't want you to sign up. It's not an option for you to sign up again. But here's a way that you can just schedule a call with him. Do it any way that you like. Do it on Zoom. Do it by phone. And he'll help you with what you're going through. And through that, I understand what they're, what they're up against. I understand when someone has a, like, 
where their business didn't work, where they have a financial crisis. I understand where their business was working and we just weren't working for them. And that helps me. Yeah, I guess it helps you be more intuitive about why people are actually canceling, right? As opposed to just trying to look yeah. at a, a compiled list of, of data, <laughs> which may or may not actually be truthful or helpful. Yep. And then it, it gives me an opportunity to go find a way to solve it for them and then bring that back into my work. And if you look at my interviews, where a lot of the feedback that comes back from them is, how did Andrew know? That was a question I, w- I would have wanted to ask and didn't even think to ask. A lot of it is because I get on calls with customers one at a time where they tell me what they're going through. And if I've got a guest coming on on Mixergy, I can ask that one thing. Do you ever do calls like that when people sign up? Because I always yeah. feel like the most important days are the day that someone decides to give you money and the day that they decide to not give you money. I do. And then I also do uh, what we did just a few weeks ago where I just send messages out and say, I've got a day. I'm just going to be sitting here. Do you want to get on a call? And I camped out one day at Bear Bottle, the brewery that no one goes to during the day, but decided they were going to be open since they brew beer anyway. I sat on their big, comfortable couch. I put my phone up with Zoom and I was, I was there for hours and hours. I'm all, I've always been impressed with the amount of endurance that you seem to have with, with, I really being, do. with being on calls. It's, you know, they talk about extroverts, you know, they, they get energized by interactions and introverts feel drained. Do you consider yourself an extrovert? I've become one. I've become one. I think that I wasn't one because I didn't know how to do it. I think like anything, if you've got mastery, then it feels more fun. I think that a lot of people who are introverts are just doing it wrong. They're doing it for other people. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not like in a conversation tapping into something that they care about. And so if you're not doing that, then it wipes you out. If you're being of service to other people and not of service to yourself, it wipes you out. If you're not finding ways to make it interesting and fun, it wipes you out. I was terrible at it. I got a copy of a book uh, called How to Win Friends and Influence People, which a lot of people read by Dale Carnegie. I took the extra step of going to Dale Carnegie's offices, knocking on their doors unannounced, saying, I'm in college. I want to intern here and I'll do anything just to be around you people. What do I need to do? And I got a job and that helped. I find that the one thing that is a letdown with Dale Carnegie, and it's amazing, and I, I, this is not, this wouldn't keep, you shouldn't keep anyone who's listening to us from taking the Dale Carnegie course, which is much better than people realize, or, or reading a book. But the one knock is he is really good at getting people to stop being so egotistical and start paying attention to other people's egos and other people's interests. And that is what I needed when I went to it. But eventually, as I got good at conversations, I was doing nothing but being there for the other person, understanding them, understanding understanding what they wanted, asking them about their interests. And so I have no interest in comic books, but I remember sitting on the subway in New York with someone talking to him about comics and he was so lit up and he was so happy. And I realized, I don't, I'm not happy. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So how do I make this interesting for me? And once I found out how to make it interesting for me, then it was a really good conversation and it, and it lifted me up. But I, I also would go beyond this. I have endurance in general. I am really good at sticking with something and being obsessively committed to it to the point where most people would give up. We were in a push-up competition on iMessage, me and a few friends. I would do it every other day, just like the app that we were using said. And the goal was to get to 100. I wasn't going to let up until I got to 100, even when I had a couple of injuries. And I think that other people on it, and I, it could be to their credit, I could this could be what leads them to have better lives. But they would come in and say, well, you know, I bought a Peloton and I'm going to talk about how my Peloton's going or I bought this other app. What is it called? Something for our whatever. And 
and I get it. And I think that if it's not working for you, you should dump out and try something different. I just don't work that way. I'm really good at staying consistently committed and looking for constant improvement. Well, I mean, I think that carries over beyond just business for you and, and even your interpersonal stuff. You, know, you look at uh, your, your goal that you had of running a marathon on, all, on every continent. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I took up running when I got, I think I was, I would have gotten depressed because the business that I was running at the time was not doing well. And I thought that my everything needed to be my business. And if my, and that's the way I I worked. And when my business wasn't doing well, I felt really bad about myself. I felt that I just something, the magic that I had, that magic touch went away because I saw that things I did could fail. And the magic came from believing that anything I touch would work out. And I took up running a little bit and I started to feel really good. I did it in the morning and I, if I ran a mile, it was amazing. I felt like I can't believe I ran a mile. I could, I could do anything. I was able to delude myself into believing I could do anything again. And then I got to two and three and five miles and so on. And then when I got tired or I had an injury and I couldn't do it and I felt like maybe I'm never going to run again and then I overcome it and run again, I feel great about myself again. And that allowed me to power through and go from like being in debt $5 million to suddenly being able to sell the business and take off as much time as I wanted. And one of the things that I did uh, during that period was run long distance and run a marathon. And a marathon's 26.2 miles. And it is a lot of dedication to get there because you have to spend time doing 10 miles on your own and 18 miles and so on. And I found a passion for it. And I remember a friend of mine said, let's all write our goals for 10 years from now. And I said, come on, John, this is John Bishke, runs a company called Entelo. And I said, all right, I'm going to do it anyway. And I did it. And one of the items on the list was run a marathon on every continent. And I didn't do it. And I discovered an Evernote doc that said that I would do it. And I said, all right, I'm recommitting. I'm going to do it now. And then Brad Weimer, a friend, sat me down and said, what if you do it like all in a day? And I said, no, I can't. He goes, no, if you do it fast, it becomes a thing. People care about it. If it's just like at some point I'm going to do a marathon, no one's going to care. Just do it as a thing that's bigger than what you're what you're planning. And I thought, well, doing it all in a day, I think I could do it. I think I could run a whole marathon seven times over in a day. Maybe that's just my me deluded. No, actually, I can't do it. Time-wise, I can't do it. It takes me a lot longer to do a marathon than than that. And I also didn't want to do it because I wanted to explore the world. Part of the goal was to go explore the world, see how other people live. And so I said, I'll do it in a year. And I got to spend a lot of time in different places that I had never been before. I spent time in Singapore. I ran on my own through Mongolia, which I, I fell in love with. Estonia was incredibly huge for me to see what they're doing in Estonia. This tiny little country is building a lot. And a lot of it is because they don't, they're not as, oh, was it? It was, I remember... I was having coffee with someone in preparation for their interview and he said, this is how well I'm doing. And I came from a farm and I go, isn't it great that you just never have to go back to that farm again? He goes, no, no. Once this business is done, I'm going back to the farm. I said, well, don't you want to get out? No, no. I said, doesn't that mean that you don't have enough ambition? No, I'm just happy doing the work that I'm doing, building up my company. And yeah, I will go back and and live on a farm and I'll be totally happy. That was a new worldview that you don't have to make it an all or nothing. My life will be over if this doesn't work out that it he's. They're building phenomenal companies without that internal anxiety. And and then Antarctica was kind of the, the challenging capstone to this whole journey though, right? Yeah, I'm glad that I, I somehow left the camera running as I was making phone calls to try to get to Antarctica. Now, Antarctica has got a lot of restrictions around it because international laws 
are preventing any one company, country, excuse me, from taking over. So you can't just say, I'm an American, I want to get on a flight and go there. There are also issues with obviously landing. You're, you have to land on ice, which you know United Airways is not doing. So, so there are restrictions. There aren't a lot of flights. There aren't a lot of people who are allowed from all these different issues. And I decided I was going to do it all in the same year. And so I'd call people up and say, can I go with you? And they say, yeah, we have a wait list of three years. And within three years, you'll do it. Can I do it any faster? Well, sometimes people drop out. And if they drop out, then maybe you can make it in two years, maybe. But I wouldn't count on it with the feedback. And I had to make my phone calls and try to find all these different approaches to come in. And I got to tell you, that re-energized me for selling. I was selling myself, persuading somebody to do something they didn't need to do and finding a way to make it a win-win and reaching out to people and saying, I need your help and getting help. And it was fantastic. And in the end, I found a couple of ways to do it. I picked one. There is an organization called Antarctic um, Logistics and Expeditions. They're the ones who, if somebody is traveling, if they're skiing from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole and then to the other edge, which means weeks and weeks of isolation. This company, Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, is the one that that will make sure that they're safe. We'll help them figure out where the crevasses are so they don't fall into that. They will help them if they need to have food delivered, To they'll drop the food where they're going to be passing. They will have a phone call on really crappy like satellite phones to make sure the person's safe every every day anyway so i flew with them cost me twenty seven thousand twenty six thousand dollars plus i had to pay a couple of thousand for insurance to make sure that there was an uh flight that i could take out if i was incapacitated while i was doing my solo marathon there plus i had to buy a pee bottle because they don't want by international laws for us to dirty Antarctica. It's not like the pee is going anywhere. It's going to stay there forever. So I had to pee in a bottle and sign an agreement saying that as I did my solo marathon, I would not pee on their ice or snow. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, it, it makes sense that you great. think about it, but that's you know the kind of stuff that ahead of time you wouldn't necessarily consider would be a, a challenge about you know what do you do with your pee. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought. It, but it blew my mind. It was so different from everything else that I'm expecting. It was people kept saying, well, what about animals as you're running by yourself? And I would have asked that question if I thought of it last year. But once you get to Antarctica, you realize there's no animal that's going to survive here. There are no bugs that are going to survive here. Unless you're really at the edge where you can see, like, I don't know, penguins or something, you're not seeing anything. They're all, if they were there, they would die. It's cold. So what about the way your organization is set up allowed you to do that, both from a a time freedom, management freedom, money freedom? What, What do you think about the way you're structured gave you that that ability to go run the seven marathons and you know be in waiting for Antarctica and spend twenty seven thousand dollars on a on a flight to get there. You know what do you what about that structure has allowed that to happen? Thankfully I really had a good group of people around and we tried to keep it within our format without starting everything brand new and just extend our current format. So that means that Our current format is we do research on guests. And so we had new guests to do research on. Our current format is we invite people to do interviews by sending them a calendar uh, link so that they could pick from a set of times that makes sense for them, but also is, is easy for me to do. And so we created a new calendar link for whatever location I was going to be in. We kept it simple that way, but we also, um, but we also expanded our, our process, right? So instead of, doing it remotely, we expanded it to doing it in an office in Singapore. But that office in Singapore was a Regis office, just like the one that I'm in right now. So we, we kept 
things like that. The other thing that helped was me recognizing one of my weaknesses is I just don't like to plan logistics. I hate it. And I'm also pretty indifferent. So you don't have to, you don't have to run everything by me. So I didn't know where I was going to be or what flight I was going to take or any of it until I landed. I could say to someone on my team, like Rebecca Lay, who was helping me, um, I need to figure out how I can run to from, I want to run in North America. I want to go from the U.S. to Texas. Oh, sorry, from Texas down, I want to run over the border into Mexico. Let's find it. I couldn't do it myself. And I could say, I need your help. I need you to just walk me through how we can do this. And we did a screen share and we did it. I could say to Andrea, I'm going to be in Estonia. I don't know where. Can you just find a place for me? And when I land, make sure that it's on my calendar. And she knows that I, I'm like a baby. I land and that's when I decide to look on my calendar. And then I tell the driver, in that case, it was Bolt instead of Uber. Bolt is huge there. It was invented there. Um, here's where I'm going and then I can go there. So there's a process that uh, that helps and there are good people who understand my weaknesses and they will babysit me through them. How many people do you have on your team right now? Right now it's uh, me and two people. That's smaller it's than I would have expected. Yeah. And has it been hard to find those people and, and retain good people for you? Yes, I've struggled with it. I've struggled with it. What part of it have you struggled with? Finding new people, keeping new, keeping great people? Finding people who are doing what I'm doing, but who have experience in the in the type of stuff that I'm doing, but aren't in the info marketer world. I've also struggled over the over the years with what am I what am I willing to to do differently because of someone else's guidance. So what you what kind of feedback you're willing to to take from your employees, or what hiring decisions you're willing to make based on outside influences? Let me give you an example. I think story is really important. I don't think most people understand what a story even is. And I'm not willing to sacrifice it. A story is an active experience where someone is relatable or you can care about them. And the only way you know that they're relatable and, they, and you care about them is if they tell you something about themselves. And then something happens that sets them on a journey. And we need to know what that thing is. And we need to be okay with that not being the perfect, most accurate representation of everything. But we need a thing that sets you off, right? The way that you have to tell stories well, and I'm not willing to sacrifice that even within an interview. As someone who has personally gone through some interesting kind of ups and downs in business and considering my wife and her family are on the medical field, so there's a little bit of a disconnect as far as understanding for what I do. I'm curious what your relationship is like for Olivia and talking about you know, your struggles and your goals and your dreams for your business and how her input changes maybe how ambitious you are, who you hire, you know, what goals you set for yourself. I think where we, she was always very good about giving me space to do what I wanted to do. We landed in Argentina. Her mom came to visit for a week. That week, there was a, I remember at least one day, we, I committed to going out to some kind of event and I wanted to spend more time working. And I remember she just went with her mom and I met up with them later on and there was no hint of of a frustration with me or resentment about it. And I always loved and appreciated that about her. Where we had a challenge was in our relationship to money, in our relationship to believing what's possible in a weird way. Like at some point I committed that Mixergy was not going to take was in the beginning I wanted Mixergy to use my money, that it would have to that it would have to be my legacy where I was going to pour my money into it and have it survive 
and do something, do some good in the world. And then I found myself doing stupid things when I was doing that. You know, I was not connected to my customer because it was all driven by me. I was connected to my internal desires and what I thought the world should do. And so I said, Mixergy is going to stand on its own. It's going to make money or not. And I remember we got to Argentina and we looked at office space immediately. I wanted to have office space. And I picked the most expensive office space in a city that's known for being inexpensive. I could have gotten away with inexpensive stuff. And I remember for her seeing me make a decision very quickly that cost money. The most money, not just cost any money. The right, most money. the most event. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was a tough thing. I think we had an apartment that overlooked the botanical gardens, had huge outdoor space. We would have parties there all the time. Hot tub outside, not that anyone would be in there. Huge garden up there. It was, it was wonderful. My little office cost more than that. And so that was a difficult thing. Well, she would she would have said at the time, why, why do that? Why not go for something that feels more financially responsible? And for me, I, I don't operate that way. So that was where we had to come in alignment. And I think that reluctantly, she has come towards my point of view. And I have just learned to enjoy her point of view a little bit more. Yeah, I think I think it's big about, you know, the, when people are in committed relationships or married or whatever, that it it's interesting how that dynamic affects a trajectory or decision making process. You know, I, like personally, I know that I've been able to take way more risks because, you know, my wife has a, a stable job at a you know big hospital here in Seattle. Um, and so that has allowed me to push push the needle further and push the envelope further yeah. than I would have otherwise, um, you know, allow me to be a, a bigger risk taker and occasionally get bigger rewards. Right. But I definitely would not have been able to do that without her consent <laughs> on, on, you know, saying, go for it, you know, do it. Let's go. Yeah. You know, I, I think that it's an underestimated thing. I, I know that I like to fight for things that matter to me. That office was in- was incredibly helpful. I'd go in there and I'd know that the internet, everything was going to work. And if it didn't, the receptionist would go and find me another one. I'd know that if I needed help finding the right food or the right date place for Olivia, the receptionist there would have taken care of it. So I get it. The way that I, and I get it and I think I was right to have gone for it. But I think in the past, what I would do is argue for what I wanted. And one of the things that I wanted to do in Argentina was run on a consistent basis. And I started arguing for it and it wasn't happening. And then I I, I remember journaling about this saying, I'm going to ask Olivia to help me do this. Instead of saying, I'm going to run despite what she says and we're going to find a way to do it. I, I said, Olivia, my personal goal is to run. I forget what the number was. Maybe it was five times out of seven every week. Would you help me find a way to do it? And now suddenly I was activating her indomitable determination to win, to do whatever she wanted to do. And suddenly she was helping me get it done. And that was a huge, huge change for me. Well, it makes her a participant instead of a passenger, which is a big, big deal. Right. And what I want is I want a loving audience member, you know, <laughs> I want a cheering audience member. But but that didn't work. It needed to be this approach. So. You know, let's let's kind of go back a little bit and touch on a few other things early on in your process. When you were first getting Mixergy going, you know, how did you go out and find your first 10 paying customers that decided, hey, I'm going to, you know, you mentioned a few people wanted to just support you, bought Lifetime, and that's great. But how did you actually convince the first people to to pull out their wallets and give you money? Yeah, even before Lifetime, I found that there were a lot of people who said, 
Andrew, you should sell the older interviews. I would buy the older interviews. And a lot of them were saying, I would buy it if you give it to me on CD-ROM or something random like that, right? What they were trying to do was say, I want all the other stuff in an easy way. I didn't agree. I'm not doing CD-ROM. I'm not sending you a USB key, which I see a lot of people do. It's a USB key. It was a lot of data. I just don't like physical stuff. I, wanted, I, I want as many intangible things in my life as possible versus tangible. And so I said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do, but I do think I should be charging people for something. I'll start by charging for the older episodes. People aren't listening to the older episodes. The podcast app that Apple has isn't really good at handling lots of older episodes anyway. Let's just try it and then I'll build onto it. I'm really good at staying focused and and improving. I'm not good at I'm not good at trying to get something great right away. So I created a membership site where you pay a fee and you get all the older stuff. And I wasn't sure what to charge. And so I put, I said this exact same thing. You can pay whatever you want. It could be $5 a month. And that was a PayPal button that I created that automatically would charge people $5 a month. Or I think I did 15 or 25 or 50. I made the most money from people who paid 50, believe it or not. Like there was more money in that than there was in 15 and more in 25. But I went with 25. And even to get to 25 and remove that, I kind of liked that people got to pick what they paid. But again, a few interviewees said, Andrew, this is it, it makes you look like you don't have your thing together. You give people a clear price and stick with that. And I said, all right, I'll, if you're not respecting it enough to want to participate, then that is a damage to the business. And I'm, I'm here to learn. So let's do it. I picked the price, 25 bucks. I stuck with that. And then I kept trying to iterate on what we offered. And for a while, and that's how I got my first people. Actually, did you send them an email? Did you talk about it on your interviews? How did you I how didn't did you realize that it? it was up and running? I couldn't get the software to work myself, partially because I think I was overthinking it. But I hired this uh, company to do to edit my interviews. And one, they said, do you have any other work for us? I said, no. I said, well, you sure? Can you look around? I said, yeah, I don't know how to set up this membership thing. Maybe you can do that. They said, sure. And I assumed that they couldn't get it done because I couldn't get it done. But they got it done. They got it done really quickly. And the only reason I knew that it was done was people on Hacker News complained that I was charging for older stuff <laughs> or that I was charging at all. And I got a lot of negative feedback, but um, I also got some really nice feedback. Like Jason Freed of Basecamp.com, he said, you should be charging. It's a good start. And a few other people encouraged me to keep going. And I started adding other stuff to it. At first, it was all the older interviews. But then it became, people said, interviews are too much work to go through. What they wanted was just the actionable things. They didn't know what to do at the end of the interview. So we created something called Action Guide. Uh, Action Guides, as I was writing it, this phenomenal writer who I got to know through this project, Michael Alexis, who was in the audience, he said, let me help you do it. And he helped shape it. And so I sold those, but then I also put them in the membership. I also said maybe people want live interaction with some of my guests and then have them teach something. So we did these live things and that became part of the membership. I just tested a bunch of different things, but I had a play thing. I had something I was charging and a commitment to keep expanding it until I got it right. Yeah, it's awesome. It's funny, you know, some of our past guests have talked about how they, you know, use Craigslist to bootstrap their first customers or whatever. So I'm always interested to know how, how people get going. Um, so I got my first customers from complainers, from people <laughs> who complained and said that I shouldn't be charging. And then, you know, with the podcast, obviously, it's all centered around getting great guests. How did you get your first great guest that really moved the needle on your downloads and subscriptions? Uh, the first real one who moved the needle, I think, was Seth Godin. 
he is a marketer. He's one of those people who has a following that will hunt his stuff down. And I just asked him. And I thought that the reason he said yes was that he would just say yes to a bunch of stuff. And years later, for my thousandth interview, I said, why did you say yes to doing the interview with me? You're the first person to do a video interview, for example. You're, you're the first in many ways. I said, it's because you want anyone out there who wants to do an interview. You want to encourage them. And so he said, no, no, I just saw something special in what you were doing. And I wanted to support that. And so I underestimated how much people saw the value in what I was doing when I was getting started before I even saw it myself. As far as them at least seeing the mission and what you were really trying to get as an end game? Yeah. I, uh, even last night at dinner, people said, Andrew, you, you asked the most like outrageous, awkward things, but you could get away with it. And, and it's because there, there were uh, people who I interviewed were there. I said, you could get away with it because we know what you're trying to do. We know that you're trying to get this understanding. And so it doesn't come across as, as, as evil. It just sometimes it's awkward, but we're there with you with the mission. And I, I'm big on saying that a lot. Like even for you, I didn't say turn on your video just to turn on your video. I said, turn on your video so I can see when something's landing or when I'm, I'm being boring. I find that telling people why is really helpful. And I do that before the interview starts a lot with my guests. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done several things with you in the past and I've always felt comfortable even though you do push people a little further than uh, most, which is a good thing. So earlier in our conversation, you mentioned how you started running because you were really depressed about your business failing and being significantly in debt. A big tenant to me during this series is I want to talk about the mental health side of being an entrepreneur. You know, it's it's not always rosy regardless of what people like to put on social media. I think people are being more open these days than they were even just a few years ago. But, you know, talk me through like how effective has running been now over a long period of time to helping you? And and is, is depression the only thing that you've dealt with in the past? Do you still deal with it? Do you deal with any anxiety, overwhelm, panic attacks? I mean, what, what other things have you built into your life? To I don't help have that? depression. I think that having gone through that, that devastating period and come out of it, a lot of things don't seem as big to me. Truthfully, having some money in the bank is helpful too, right? Going from deep debt to, to cushion, it's phenomenal for my sleep, phenomenal for my health. And I also still will wake up in the middle of the night with worries. And that's, that's when it gets me. It's things like, oh man, I was supposed to get back to that guy and I didn't. And that will wake me up and suddenly that becomes a thing. During the day, I can just move it, move it aside, but at night it'll get me. I was supposed to do my, my taxes and I didn't respond to the accountant. It'll get me then. But it doesn't, I don't get to the point of, I don't think I don't get to the point of depression. I know I used to, um, less than most, but I think I used to get to that point. I think I didn't realize that through a large part of my first company, I was, I was depressed. I wasn't happy. Um, and I determined that now I would be happy that I would prioritize it. Um, so what do you do when you say you prioritize it? So what, what have you done differently to actually make that happen? Because people can say things sometimes like, oh, I, I'm deciding that this is going to be the way things are. But it requires action typically for that to become reality. So what did you do? Like what did prioritizing right. happiness look like for you? I think recognizing that it's, that it's a choice I need to make where before I thought that being unhappy was the way to go. I thought that I needed to be unhappy, which would make me uncomfortable in my life, which would make me work harder. And there might be truth in that. But 
I decided I didn't want that. I didn't want to have that existence. I didn't want to be the guy who was the grumbly old man sitting on the couch while his kids are looking at him saying, well, just ignore him. He's always going to be pissed. I didn't want to be that. Um, and so part of it is a decision. Another part is having some diversity in my life. I recognize that I was the type of person who could just sit at home and work all day long. And to get myself out, I got partially because I really wanted a dog, but also to get myself out, I got a dog. And so I was forced to wake up and get out of the house and go walk the dog and then do it again twice more. And so that helped. Um, and that's not a thing I would have done before. It's it's a prioritizing a distraction, but it's a, it's a helpful distraction. Having an outside interest that makes me good at something that's totally up to me, right? With work, it's not up to me. It's is someone listening to this podcast? Is, does someone care? It's up to their interest to decide whether I'm doing a good job or not. But with a run, it's just up to me. I could just put one foot in front of the other and I can get to say a marathon on my own. Even if it's not a fast marathon, I know I could finish it. And that helped. Something where success is totally within my control. Yeah, there's so many things in business that aren't in our control, right? We we mm -hmm. can influence them, but oftentimes there's just things that happen that we don't have control over, right? The only thing we have control over is how we respond to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it sucks because I do want the outcome to be in my control. And then uh, you can't always, right? You can't convince somebody to to do something. You can't always convince someone to do something that they don't want. I think this also segues into a, an, another portion that I wanted to touch on real quick here towards the end. Um, you know, you having a larger audience and, and coming on the show is fantastic. So I reached out to my social circles and asked, you know, what kind of questions do you have for Andrew? And one question was actually from Will at startups.com. And he wanted to know, what does enough look like to you? I wondered why Will was asking it. I was thinking about that a lot. Will Schroeder, um, I think that, I think because my answer in the past has always been, it's a silly question. It's never going to be enough. Why should it be? It's like, if and, and I know what he's getting at, and I know what a lot of people are getting at with that question. It's like, how much money is enough? How much success is enough? But they would never ask it for anything else. They would never say, Andrew, how much running is enough? You've done a marathon. Do you have to do another one? You just ran yesterday. Do you have to run again? You did it. You kissed your wife this morning. Do you have to kiss her again? When is it enough, man? When will you stop kissing your wife? When will you stop hugging your kids? I think it's a question about contentment. I'm content and I always want more. I'm content and happy and comfortable in my relationship with my kids and I still want them to come and hug me and with my wife and I still want her to come and hug me and kiss me. And But I have to say that I'm wondering if me pursuing money directly and business success so aggressively directly is maybe counterproductive. I don't know. This is a year for me to think things like that through. This is a year where I'm going to, I'm going to allow myself to second guess the foundations of my life. I think having those experiences all over the world where I get to see success in lots of different ways has allowed me to see that there are other ways that we couldn't, that I couldn't have anticipated to live life. Like the guy who gets off of a farm and says, I'll just go right back to the farm. It's totally fine. And still be fully working. Like the person who, um, in some like in explaining to me how great his software is, he goes like, you know, we have all those amazing cameras everywhere here in Singapore that they're looking at us. The way I convinced all my customers was by saying, well, you can have that same kind of spying power over your your employees and the people coming in your business. And that's when I had that epiphany that I could give them this spying power. I said, you know, in the U.S., people are going to hear that and they're going to be like, 
upset that you're helping people spy. You're going to be upset that that they're that you're accepting and and proud of all the cameras and surveillance. He goes, really? I realized, wait, it was a different way of looking. Now I'm a little exaggerating what he said, but the point is he had a different worldview. And I went for a run in Singapore with that worldview. And one of the things that I noticed was I was willing to go into these weird, creepy, otherwise creepy corners of Singapore. They were dark. There was nothing going on there. But I felt so, so fine because there were cameras overhead. And as I went to random places, I would see women walking in dresses by themselves as like crowds of three or four or individually in places that were that seemed a little scary, except for the fact that there was camera everywhere. And I realized, you know what? I, coming from the U.S., have this understanding that cameras everywhere are a real problem, that that surveillance state and it gives the government too much power and it reduces us to little tiny ants in their world and all that stuff. And and it, it limits freedom. I come at that. I accept that that's who I am. But I didn't understand that there was an advantage to it that people could appreciate day to day and actually be proud of. And if the world can be that upside down from my understanding and people can still be okay with it, I can take 2020 to see what's the next evolution of Andrew and be willing to turn it all upside down for myself. Well, it's probably also important just to at least note that um, wanting more and not having regret are not, you know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. Right. I do think that that's, I think that's, that's brilliant. Yes. I think that people think that wanting more and being unhappy have to be married together. It's not true. It's not true. Not true. See, that I was my interpretation. That was more. my interpretation of the, you know, what is enough? That was my interpretation is is not, you know, blunting wanting more. It's, you know, what is enough to make you not have regret? Yeah, I feel like they're so disconnected. I I am one of the happiest people that I know to the point where it frustrates Olivia at times, my wife. And frankly, it frustrates me. I, I grew up in New York. I did not want to ever be happy. I felt like you don't get happy until you're an old man, almost dead, and maybe even your last breath should be the only happy breath that you have. The rest are just like in the fight. And I'm, I've am i achieved something that a lot of people want to achieve, which is real, genuine day-to-day happiness. And it doesn't come with saying it's enough. You know, I've had, play, I've had times in my life where I did think it was enough. I remember walking through Venice Beach, getting a cup of coffee from the corner store, walking back to my beachfront place, looking out and saying as I walked, I've achieved enough. I'm okay. And I was happy then and I felt it. And now I don't feel that need to say anything's enough, but I'm giving myself 2020. Maybe 2020 is the year where I go, who cares? Maybe satisfaction can be fleeting and that can be okay. Maybe. I think maybe just like I, my mind was blown by the cameras and people's perception of it. Maybe there's someone whose mind could be a little bit blown that not enough doesn't have to mean anger and frustration, but could mean I can't wait to get a little bit more. I can't wait to go home and, and squeeze my wife's butt. hope that's not appropriate to say on your program, but I will. <laughs> that's what I love about you, Andrew. Um, yes. Do you, like, I guess, what if you could put your finger on one thing that was the biggest non-monetary benefit then of Mixergy? What would it be? I think last year is a great example of it. How many people had to rally to help me find guests all over the planet to do interviews with? How many who never met me before had to come together and make make themselves available, make their offices available, enable me to do interviews there? And then how many people internally at my company had to come together or people who we were working with um, through contractors had to come together and help me find all these locations and make it all work and make sense? And then I got to do this 
you know, run a marathon on every continent, make a profit from my hobby. I'm like a professional runner in some ways that I made money by running. I think about the people who invited me into their homes. They never heard of me before. A.D. Painter, the co-founder of WooCommerce, among other things, his wife convinced me to go to South Africa. As soon as we got there, he said, I want to be a good host. You and Olivia should come over to our house. We got to go to their place. We got to spend time with them. We got to see how they think as a couple, how they live in an interesting you know, in an interesting way. I thought that was just, that was meaningful. That was meaningful. And so that's a huge upside. I get emails from people who tell me how Mixergy has helped them. I'm somebody who, the one thing that I do worry about is that Mixergy hasn't done enough for other people, for its customers, for its audience. And I do love the messages I get from people who say, I listen to Mixergy, it helped me, here's where I am today. So the community, it sounds like, is definitely the biggest benefit that's non-monetary. I wouldn't call it community because there's not a connection between them. There is, it's it's the goodwill. It's the goodwill that I think that um, I'm sitting here doing research for people before you got on while someone was, gave me five minutes, I was reading a book in preparation for my upcoming interview, Girl Dec- Decoded is the book. That's a lot of work. And I think sometimes people don't, I know people don't notice the work that goes into it, but the goodwill that comes from the result of that is meaningful. They do, they do appreciate. Well, this has been great. I, I wish we had two hours together personally, because um, I always love talking with you. I had, I had a bunch of other notes here on questions. I, you're, you're one of the few people I know that has an iPad heavy workflow that I was curious oh, I about it. as a technology guy. I, you know, I, I know I want to talk about your research stuff because I, I do know that you go way deeper than anyone else, but unfortunately we're kind of up against our time. So uh, if people want to reach out to you or connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? I used to say, just come to my office, 201 Mission Street, and people would just show up. But now with coronavirus, people are saying, just stay away. I'm going to say the best way is to go to Mixergy or in whatever podcast app you're listening to us on right now. Look for M-I-X-E-R-G-Y, Mixergy. It's kind of a tough name that I ended up with. M-I-X-E-R-G-Y or Andrew Warner, or just see me somewhere. You'll find me. Or at some point, they may have to meet you for a scotch night, right? I would love it. But again, we're being told not to. Last night, I did not touch anybody. I did the foot bump (laughs) because (laughs) we're all worried about corona. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been a real pleasure. I I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. I I really appreciate you being what I consider a friend. I know we don't get to talk that often, but I definitely consider you a friend in the industry and in this business. So thanks for your time and thanks for your insights. Thanks for having me on. Bye. Bye, everyone.